I'd love you to open your Bibles to Philippians, and we're just going to read two verses from the beginning of Philippians, and then also Acts 16. I want to read a fairly lengthy section of Acts 16, so I'm going to read it quickly, um, but I would love you to pay careful attention because I'm not going to be sort of retelling the story. We'll refer to it as we go, but I want you to pay attention and just to listen carefully to what happens. It really unfolds in about three chapters, three conversions that happen in that chapter, which tells the story of the start, the founding, the planting of this church in this Macedonian town called Philippi. So just reading the first two verses of the book of Philippians, it says this, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. This was written a number of years after the church had begun. And it's uh, one of the most affectionate of all Paul's letters. He loves this church. There's no question. He holds this church in his heart with such passion. Now let's read the story of how it actually began. And we're going to read from, which, what are we going to read from? We're going to read from verse 6 to verse 40. And I'll keep the pace fairly brisk. <clears throat> And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they'd come up to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So remember, this is the first missionary journey that, that ever took place. Or it, I think it might be the second, actually. But it's, it's part of that early missions work that was going on in the book of Acts. And it says the Spirit of God did not allow them. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. He means a place where Jews or people who were kind of converting half into Judaism would pray. And we sat down and spoke to the women who'd come together. And one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us saying, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone... They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. 
The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they'd inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer awoke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, What must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia and when they'd seen the brothers, they were encouraged and they encouraged them and departed. Well, I want to start um, a new series. We completed our last series towards the end last month and... um, we're starting a new one in this book of Philippians, which I think is one of the most extraordinary books, and certainly most people I know who read the Bible would rank this as one of their favorite books to, to read and reread and nurture themselves on. I'm drawn to it for a few reasons. Firstly, because the book of Philippians is probably the happiest book in the Bible in terms of um, just the constant resounding note of joy. Now, there's also some pretty direct words in there. But there's just this infectious joy that comes through the letter. And I think that's an incredibly important thing for us to think about in this day and age. Um, There's a great deal of searching and not a lot of joy in the world. And unfortunately, Christians seem to be laboring under the the mistaken idea that that God doesn't want you to be happy. And actually, um, if you understand the message of the Bible, that's not, not factually correct. It's not theologically correct. The Lord Jesus has saved us that we can be happy in knowing him. And uh, if you're not happy, there are things God wants to do in your heart through this letter. Another reason why I think it's so good for us to study is that it's profoundly Christ-centered. Um, it's, a lot of the verses in this will be very familiar to you, but just the way that Paul wrestles with his possible impending death, he's like, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's all brilliant because I love Jesus. I don't mind if I'm killed. He has words like that he forgets what lies behind and presses on to the upward call in Christ Jesus. He, he talks about Jesus in the highest possible language, and that is going to affect you. 
it will imprint something on your heart as you open up this book, this obsession, this passion for the Lord Jesus. It's totally life-changing. And the third reason is just more personal. I've waited years for this opportunity. Arguably, I planted a church just so I could preach through the book of Philippians. Um, That's not actually true, but I am very excited to be getting into it, feeding myself my own spirit on this book, and then opening it up for you guys. Now, as we begin today, all I want to do, I say all, but I think it's profoundly important. I want you to pay attention to just one word in the book, right at the start, when Paul introduced himself, and Timothy, who's with him at the time, he says, Paul and Timothy servants of Christ Jesus. Servants of Christ Jesus. He understands himself to be a servant of the Lord and through his service to Jesus, a servant to the people. And he adopts right from the beginning. Often when Paul opens his letters, he introduces himself as apostle of Christ Jesus. But not here, not today. He says servants. And that posture of servanthood seems to me to be in a way, the lens through which you can understand so much of the way he speaks in this letter, why he's happy, why he's so delighted in knowing Christ. It's almost like a key, a note through which you can understand the whole of the book of Philippians. And it seems to me that understanding the vitality of this, of what it means to be a servant of Jesus, this self-understanding is so important for the godly life. We live in a day and an age when uh, we seem to have moved away from any notion of living a humble life or a selfless life. Um, We seem to have moved away from, in in our culture, and towards more of a kind of, where self is God. It explains a lot of what's going on in, in, in the world of ethics and morality and the changes that we're seeing there. It's basically an expression of self as God. Authentically living a self-centered life is what explains the, 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 what we're seeing in the world today. And it's become normal for people to self-promote themselves and to fight to get ahead and all these kinds of things. And cutting against all of that, You have this man writing a letter from the bowels of a prison speaking of himself as a servant of the Lord. If that is not your self-understanding, if that is not a controlling view of who you are, then your life will be the lesser for it. It explains how he can be so joyful. Because Paul doesn't look at his life and think about his rights and his demands and feel outraged by his situation. He is a servant of Jesus. The Lord's will is his good pleasure. It explains how he can speak to them with this extraordinary language of abandonment to Jesus and Jesus' will throughout this letter. It's because he sees himself as a servant. He has credibility with this church because he'd adopted this posture from the day he arrived and that's what we're going to be exploring in, the book, in, in chapter 16 of Acts. But what is a servant? A servant ne- is negatively is somebody who has made the decision that they are not living for themselves anymore. That as Christ puts it, you have died to yourself. You have put yourself to death. You have taken up your cross. 
And to put it positively, it's somebody who acknowledges who their master is and self-consciously, deliberately, relentlessly lives a life of obedience to that master. The word that Paul uses here where he describes himself as a servant is the same word for slave. It's translated as servant just because their notion of slavery is different to what you probably imagine a slave to be. But it's a bond servant, somebody who is owned by a master. Is this true of you? Do you see yourself as a servant of Jesus? I want to show you, going into the book of Acts, I want to show you three things that are true of Paul in his servant mentality as he plants the church in Philippi years before he wrote the letter to them. Three things then. Here's the first. That a servant is someone who serves with both their head and their heart. What do I mean? Well, this story is really interesting. As you know, when the church was birthed in the book of Acts, it was started in one town, the city of Jerusalem. Almost accidentally, through persecution, it began to spread, but it was up to that point, uh, Acts chapter 11 or so, it was still only confined to a small geographic region in the world, and the number of Christians was fairly small. And then God starts speaking in Acts chapter 13 through a group of elders in a church in a city called Antioch. And he says, set apart for me Paul and Barnabas for the work to which I've called them. They become the first missionaries. And Paul had already told, God had already told Paul what he was meant to do with his life. He was to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, not just to the Jews. He was meant to spread the gospel to the whole world. And so Paul had this this devotion and his, his heart. He, he wanted to live for Christ and burn out on the mission field. And uh, he made it his goal particularly. He wanted to reach the city of Rome. You trace a story through the book of Acts and there's this longing to get to Rome, to the capital of the empire. Now, why, where does Philippi sit in that kind of storyline? Philippi had been conquered about 100 years before and the book of Philippians is written by Mark Antony and Octavian, who's also known as Augustus, who became emperor. And they killed two men called Brutus and Cassius, who were the murderers of Julius Caesar. And they turned Philippi, this Macedonian city, into a Roman colony, which meant that they had tax benefits. Um, it's kind of like a Barbados of the, of the Roman world where all these veterans would come back from war and they'd live there and they'd, there was this Roman elite in the city who were, um, governing, who were kind of governing and the most important people in the city and then a kind of Greek under, underclass of uh, workers and laborers and all the rest of it. And it was situated on a major trade route that ran from what they then understood to be Asia, it was kind of Turkey and, and then east of Turkey, a trade route from there that ran through into the Roman Empire called the Ignatian Way. And uh, it was situated right on that trade route. A Roman town then on a key road running from Asia into Europe. And so when Paul goes there, what I'm trying to help you understand here is that this was an incredibly strategic place in the greater mission of spreading the gospel to the world. And in fact, you start to see that even in these three stories of the converts in, in Acts 16. The first is a, an Asian, Lydia from Thyatira. Then, probably a Greek, the slave girl. And finally, a Roman, the jailer. And so 
what you're beginning to see is the transition of the gospel from Asia into Europe. And here's how one, uh, one writer put it. He says, in an instant, he's talking about Paul setting foot into Philippi. He says, in an instant came one of the great turning points in history. As Paul and company, because he was traveling with Luke, and Silas, and Timothy, made a two-day crossing to Neapolis and walked nine miles along the Ignatian Way to Philippi. Rome did not know it, but the flag of Christianity was unfurled in the empire that day. Rome did not know it, but the flag of Christianity was unfurled in the empire that day. The reason why I'm saying all this to you is because I want you to understand that for Paul living a life of service to Jesus, this was an incredibly strategic thing in the greater mission. And in fact, this is the kind of thinking that has gone behind us planting this church. Here we are in one of the most influential and extraordinary cities on planet Earth. And I love this city. I love its diversity. I love the extraordinary display of talent and gifts and the beauty that we have in a city like this. But cities like London have a far-reaching influence, don't they? When you plant a church, you anticipate that people are going to be part of this church who will be world shapers and world changers. That can happen in any church, but it seems to me that when you are in a city like London, there's just a greater chance of that. I don't know what God's going to do with all of your lives. I wonder. I hope whether God's going to send you off into trajectories of mission into unknown places like Tony Pandy, or whether God's going to put you in places of government and influence. It's up to Jesus because he's Lord. We trust him. But one thing's for sure, this church is going to be a sending church. It becomes that almost by default by the fact that we see so many people leave every year. They leave London. You expect in a London church to lose a third of your people every single year breaks your heart, but it also thrills you because you know people are taking something. Every time they go, they're bringing something of the impact of the gospel on their own lives to wherever they go. And so just using our heads for a moment, just as Philippi was a strategic place, so is London. And I wonder, do you love living in this city? Has God captured your heart with what it means to live here and to do mission here? Has he, has he won you in that way? Because not only was, for Paul, not only was this a head thing, it also became a heart thing. I love how the story unfolds because actually Paul had no real intention of going to Philippi. Jesus made it absolutely plain to him that this is how it was going to happen. He had no master plan going on here. It was the spirit of Jesus, if you remember those early verses, who like... It was like bumpers on, an, on a bowling alley. You know, he, he tries to go this way, he says no. He tries to go that way, he says no. And he says, you're going to Philippi. And it culminates in a dream that's given to Paul of this man of Macedonia. I don't know how he recognized him as a Macedonian man. I can only assume that they, they wore a certain type of toga or something. There was something about him that distinguished him. And he's waving to Paul and saying to him, it's there in verse 9, come over to Macedonia and help us. And then it says, Paul, he just says he concluded that God had called them to preach the gospel. So for Paul, 
in their experience of going to Philippi, this became both head and heart. There was a kind of strategic thing going on, but actually that was Jesus. Paul didn't really understand what was the master plan at work here. What was more important for him was the way Christ began to capture his heart with a compassion for the people of Philippi. Come and help us. When you're called to live a life of mission for Christ, which every Christian is, I think it's very hard to preach the gospel consistently through word and action and everything unless you have a compassion for the people you are reaching. And so for Paul, remember, this self-conscious servant of Jesus Christ, it meant surrendering not only his mind to the will of Jesus, it meant also surrendering his heart, wanting to take on board the passions of Jesus Christ to reach the world. Because Christ had in his heart to win the people of Philippi. He wanted them. That same love needs to beat in our own hearts. The compassion for the city we're in. Has God given you that throbbing desire to see London impacted with the gospel? You look around and there is profound need. People whose lives are wrecked and ruined by their own mistakes and by the things that happen to them. There is deep hopelessness that runs under the surface of what otherwise look like well-healed, wealthy London lives. And then there's the people in London who are not well-healed and wealthy. Jesus would want to birth in our hearts that same vision. Come and help us. And maybe it's not London for you. Maybe God is stirring something different in your heart, a compassion, a desire, a love for a place or a people that's not here. What is it? To be a servant of Jesus Christ is to surrender to him your head and your heart and say, Lord, put in me the desires that you have to reach this world. Send me wherever you want to send me. I want to do your will. So I want to ask you, what is it that controls your decision making about where you are and why you're there? Is it that you have certain dreams and ambitions and desires and things you want to do with your life? Or is it you can say with Paul, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. My head, my heart are surrendered to the will of Christ. That is how the church in Philippi began. This is how God birthed an extraordinary work. And it was an amazing church. You can read letters written generations after Paul talking about how still, how amazing this church was. Well, it was birthed in the passion of Christ put in Paul's heart. Here's a second thing about a servant. A servant is someone who initiates and surrenders. What do I mean? Well, one of, the, one of the great emphases that comes through in Jesus' parables about what it means to be a servant is that he expects his servants to be kind of front-footed initiators taking responsibility for the things that God has given them to do. Now, when you think about a servant, you tend to think about somebody whose hands are tied, who doesn't have free will or the ability to um, use their initiative or their creativity. But actually, when Christ talks about his, this, in the parables where he talks about leaving people in charge as servants and talking about parables in Matthew 24 and Matthew 25, he always puts the responsibility back on them. It comes through in verses like this in Matthew 24. He says, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master, that's Christ, has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? 
Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. In other words, when the master goes away and Jesus has gone to ascend into heaven, he leaves his servants with a job to do. Will you be faithful with what God's given you to do? Are you somebody who looks at opportunities and wants to be proactive in, work, in, in working for God with the field he's given you, or with the talents he's given you, or with the opportunities he's given you? It comes across even more vividly in the next chapter in the parable of the talents, where the master also goes away and leaves different amounts of resources in the hands of different men and then comes back some time later to see what they've done with what he'd left them. And the, the emphasis that comes through in that chapter is, is what it says in verse 21 of, of chapter 25. He says, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'll set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So Christ goes away. He leaves these servants with work to do, but not much instruction on how to get it done. And their job is to hustle. They've got to think, what is it that will benefit the work of my master with the talents that he's given me or with the resources he's given me? And he loves to come back and see how they've just, their gifts have exploded and they've done all kinds of things for his service. Now, the reason I'm stressing this for you is because I want you to see that to be a servant of Christ is somebody who looks at opportunity and wants, is chomping at the bit to get things done for Jesus. This is how Paul appears to us in Acts 16. You see how in those early verses it says they're trying to go to Phrygia and Galatia because they've been forbidden to be in Asia. Then they want to go, uh, they tend to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus doesn't allow them. The image that I have when I'm thinking about Paul attempting new things, attempting new things, and then Christ stopping him, stopping him, it's like a dog on a leash. You know how when you, you take a big dog for a walk, a powerful dog, these things, they, they want, they've got things to do and places to go and poo to smell and lampposts to go and pee on. And they, they are busy about their job. And you're, so you're the master, you pull, you, you pull on the leash because the dog, you know, you can't let it run, run loose, but it's eager, it's eager. This is the image you have of Paul in his, his desire to serve Christ. He's not sat around in his room moping and wondering what he's meant to do with his life. He knows the general will of God is to save the nations. So he thinks to himself, well, where do they need to hear the gospel? They need to hear the gospel in Bithynia. They need to hear the gospel in Asia. And Jesus is like, no, no, you're going there. But I, I love the initiative. I love the fact that he... It's almost like this entrepreneurial spirit in Paul. He's like, I've been given a certain amount of time. I've been given these abilities. I've been given this task. I'm going to get it done one way or another. And that's so liberating when you think about your calling in that way. Because Jesus, you know, a lot of Christians sit around thinking, I'm not sure what God's will is for my life. And so do end up doing very little. And Jesus has made it very clear what his will is for your life. Make disciples of all nations. I know it can get more complex when you think about your particular gills, gifts and not gills, we're not fish, <laughs> your gifts, your abilities, your talents, all that kind of stuff. I know there's a complexity to that question, but think about Jesus as the master. What is it that he delights in in his people? He loves faith. He loves that kind of eager, passionate desire to do something for him. And he's also loves surrender that, you know, he can stop you at any point. So don't worry, just get on with it. So you see this in Paul, that he has this mentality of initiative, but there's also balance with that 
In fact, even enhance, enhancing that is this, this, this confident belief that God is sovereign over the course of his life. So yet, he, he's always on the front foot, taking initiative, doing new things for Christ, being, being a creative and imaginative and, and, and proactive. But it sits within this sovereignty that Jesus is actually in control and Paul knows it. And that sovereignty of God runs all the way through the, the founding of the church in Philippi. It's there in the very start how Christ makes sure that he ends up in Philippi and not the places where he wanted to go. It's there in how he providentially meets Lydia and leads her to faith in Jesus and how it says that, that God opened her heart to receive the word. This was not an accidental meeting. This was something that God had arranged. God took Paul and made sure he met Lydia at the riverbank and that his, her heart was prepared to, to listen to the gospel. The same thing happens with a jailer. And so when you look back on the story of the founding of the church in, in, in Philippi in Acts 16, you kind of think, well, Paul founded it, but actually you think Jesus founded this church because none of this could have been designed by Paul. He's just going along with the flow of what's happening in his life, just taking initiative when he can, but Christ is orchestrating the movements. He couldn't have known that casting out a demon in a girl was going to land him in prison, preaching the gospel to a jailer and seeing a whole household come to faith. He couldn't have planned this stuff. So for us, we work often unsure of what God's up to, but pressing forwards. And to be a servant of Jesus is a call to leadership, to activism, to mission, to releasing all of your creativity and passion in the desire to see the gospel spread into the nations. But you will look back with hindsight and think, even though I thought I was making decisions, Jesus was orchestrating my life in ways I could not have planned for myself. This is what, what our experience was just in starting this church how, you know, the story was that when we came back from a sabbatical, we intended to plant a church or to go and help turn around an established church in North London. And we asked these seven people to come and join us. And um, we thought, you know, these guys are our friends. They can help us. But we never had in mind at the time church planting and all the challenges that are involved in starting something from new. So we, didn't, we weren't looking for those gifts. We were thinking turnaround. We just want people who, who love Jesus and will be vibrant contributors to the mission. And then God just started closing that door. And we were like, well, what do we do then? We've asked these people to join us. <laughs> They've all said yes, but we're not, going, we're not going where we thought we were going. And then God began to show us that we were meant to plant a church here in Waterloo. Because there was nothing in like about a mile square of, the, of this area that was preached the gospel, which is a huge patch of a city like London. So... And then I started going back through the, the seven people we'd asked, and they all lived in the area. They all had complementary gifts to get a church started from scratch. They were like the X-Men of church planting. <laughs> Seriously. It was like we had the legal stuff covered. We had the finance stuff covered. We had the design stuff, the tech stuff. We had a worship leader. We had bakers. Very important to have people who bake. We had it all. And I was like, flipping heck. I did not... I didn't design this. It wasn't my intention. They all live where we want to plant a church, and they have all these gifts to get the church started. And then before we even began, Annabelle had heard me talk about this idea at a conference, and she came to me and said, I want to join your church plant. And through her, 
was a door was opened into the student world, and we began having students like Estera and Jamie come to join the church. And then also, um, Chloe rocked up about a week before we started, and I bent her arm up her back and said, you're joining our church, because <laughs> we need another worship leader. But it was like, with hindsight, it was like, I couldn't have arranged this. God was just bringing people. And their gifts were so wonderfully complementary to what we wanted to do. And so this is how it works. To be a servant of Jesus means, friends, yes, you take every opportunity to further the mission, but you always sit back and relax into the knowledge that Jesus is in control. He's going to stop you if he wants to stop you. He's going to open doors. He's going to weave the story of your life in a way that you could never plan it. So just get on with something, I think is what I'm trying to say. (laughs) Being a servant for Jesus is head and heart. It's initiative and surrender to the will of of the master. Here's a third thing about being a servant of Jesus. It's accepting joys and sorrows, blessings and hardships. And this is so important to see in this chapter of how the church in Philippi was birthed. You see, a lot of Christians only expect one or the other of these two things. They expect, on the one hand, some, some Christians believe you're only in the will of God if you're experiencing nothing but favor and ease. And the minute you hit resistance, you're like, well, this cannot be God's will. And a lot of Christians talk about seeking God's will in terms of feeling peace. And I get what you're talking about, but you know, a lot of the time when you're in the will of God, you don't feel peace. And then on the other hand, there are Christians who seem to have the opposite mindset where you think, we can't possibly be in God's will if things are going too well. You know, we only, we're, only, we're only serving Jesus if we're really suffering and struggling and, and depressed about things and things aren't going well. And they get suspicious when stuff starts to happen, like churches where they start to grow and people sit there in the back row going, this isn't how, how it used to be. It used to just be me and my, my, these other two people, and that was it. And they, they liked it like that. And we get suspicious because he said, didn't Jesus promise trouble in the world? And he did. John 16. But then you start to see the stories like Acts 16, you realize that the texture of the New Testament is so much more complicated and complex. You see both going on. On the one hand, think about this, you've got incredible moments of favor on this mission to Philippi. I think particularly about this meeting with Lydia. So Lydia is a seller of purple goods, which means very little to us today, but then, to make, apparently, you needed a special dye that comes from mollusks. And to get one gram of purple dye, you needed 8,000 mollusks. So you can imagine, this is like, you know like saffron is like more expensive than gold in, in its weight. This is like, take that to an nth degree. So you can, you can rightly conclude this is a wealthy woman. She trades in one of the most rare and, and uh, desired products on the face of planet Earth at the time. Emperors wanted this dye for their garments. And she's the first person who comes to faith in Philippi. You know, it's like you plant a church and then Alan Sugar walks in. <laughs> and he says, you can use my building and you can have an office suite and you can come and live in, in the big, in, not the big, but the apprentice house out in West London, all that kind of stuff. That's kind of what happens. And I love how it's told here in Acts 16. It says, after she's baptized, she urged them, saying, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. It says, she prevailed upon us. 
And I'm thinking, why did she have to prevail upon you, Paul? You know, he's so used to sleeping rough under the stars and traveling with very few comforts that when a wealthy person says to him, come and stay, he doesn't think this could be right. He's like, no, my job is to suffer for Jesus. And she prevails upon them. So he gets a feather bed and, and they sleep in comfort and they're waited upon by servants and all the kind of stuff, the trappings that would have come with staying in a wealthy household. Of course, you see the same kind of favor going on when the jailer comes to faith and his whole household comes and he baptizes them all. And you think, now we have a church. We've got people who, you know, enough people to start a church. And we baptized a bunch of them. But all through it as well is mixed with this intense opposition and setback. You know, he, he, Paul couldn't have predicted what was going to happen when, he, firstly, he's just being irritated by this de- demonic girl. This girl who's like possessed by a demon who's, who's shouting up day after day, following around, shouting about how these guys are going to preach the way of salvation. And you, you only have to spend a couple of hours with me with my children around to realize how irritating it is when, when kids are shouting all the time. <laughs> you, you lose your rack. And so whilst Paul's experiencing favor, he's also got this like irritation, this voice in the back of his head, this girl who's like shouting and shouting about who, who they are and what they're up to. And so he just turns around in his frustration and annoyance and casts the demon out. It's like, <laughs> I wish I could do that. So, um, and then to, to boot, so he's already been like annoyed for like days and days. And then to add to that, he then gets beaten for it. Now, you know, this is hard stuff for a man of God. Paul's been beaten on many occasions. It's never pleasant. But you know, for us, we, we experience that kind of stuff and you know, we're out of there. We're thinking, God's clear, clearly not with me in this because it's so hard right now. But for Paul, he's just loving it. He's like, he just rolls with the punches. And in fact, he never loses his joy, not for a moment. I love how it says in verse 25 that about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. So he's just received a brutal beating at the hands of the, of the city, and he's still happy. I guess my question for you is, how can we roll with the joys and the setbacks, the blessings and the hardships in life, without losing our joy? And I think the key is to come back to where we began. It's because he has the mindset of a servant. A servant doesn't look at their life and demand rights demand what's due to them. A servant is surrendered to the goodwill of the master. That's how a Christian can experience favor and suffering and know Christ's presence with them in it it all. Are you experiencing the favor of God and the things you're doing for him right now? Enjoy it. Don't get too suspicious. It's great. Just take it while it comes. Are you experiencing setback? Don't quit. Friends, all of this comes back to the understanding Paul had of himself, which was rooted in his identity in Christ. 
the thing you must grasp above all was that Paul understood himself as a bondservant because he knew that Christ had served him. He knew that his life had been won by the Lord Jesus. Back in the book of Philippians, a passage we'll get to in in good time, he says about Jesus that though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In Paul's heart, the reason why he can lay his life down for the mission is because Christ laid his life down for him. And Jesus has done the same thing for you. He's purchased you. He's purchased you by his own blood. That knowledge should radically reorient your understanding of why you are on planet Earth. It should uproot your sense of ambition and replace it with an ambition for Christ. It should uproot your desire to fulfill yourself and replace it with a desire to be fulfilled in Christ. Do you understand yourself as a servant of Jesus? Is your life surrendered to him in this way? I believe that To understand yourself in this way as a servant is the only way to live a meaningful life. Head and heart, the whole of your being engaged in service of Jesus. It's the only way to live a truly secure life where you can step out, as Paul does with initiative, but also surrender into the will of God as you understand his sovereignty. And it's the only way to live a truly contented life where you can experience the joys and the sorrows and trust the will of the master who owns you and who loves you and is caring for you. Can we pray together? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have won us by serving us. And not only that, but Lord, the fact that we know you can be credited in part to the selfless sacrifice of countless men and women who served you in the centuries that ran before us. We're here for a brief flash of time, a moment in history. And we don't want to squander the time you've given us or the gifts you've given us. We certainly don't want to waste them building our own temporary kingdoms, governing our own lives, building something for ourselves. We'd rather burn out for you, Lord, serve you with everything we are and everything we have and leave a mark on this world that resembles your kingdom. Thank you for how the church in Philippi began, how you made sure it began. Thank you for how this church has begun. But Lord, I pray that you'll birth it in our hearts to be a people who dedicate ourselves to your service for the decades to come, so that from this place will be many who are sent out in mission to reach the farthest corners of the world and the most difficult places to reach in a city like this. Slay us so that you can build us up.
conquer us so that you can own us for yourself. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.